Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey there, folks. Heath Corson here on special assignment for the Nerdist Writers Panel. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to interview Alexis Kennedy of Fail Better Games, indie game designer, designer of Fallen London and Sunless Sea. It's going to be hopefully the first of a couple game, video game people that we're going to talk to on the Writers Panel. And I'm looking forward to many, many more. But here's me and Alexis. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. I'm a big gamer. I'm very interested in this. You're one of my very first writers of games. I uh, noticed there didn't seem to be any other in the got, We haven't yeah. sort of cracked into those people and getting to talk to them yet. And uh, it's a big bummer, because I'm a, I, I, I'm a big gamer, and I really would love to talk to people about the craftsmanship and how to do it and the page count and so this is this is going to be I very would be exciting delighted to hook you this up is very I can oh it's fantastic yeah. well, that would be i'm going to take you up on that because i'm at uh, the indie end of the scene uh, absolutely but, but i know but some triple a guys that's so. some of the really fantastic stuff is coming oh, I think from so. there really exciting stuff um so let's get into it mm. you're not from here where did you uh, spoiler mm. spoiler alert where did you grow up? Were, were games always part of your uh, growing up? Was it something that you knew you wanted to do? Was it writing? Was it storytelling? What, did, get, talk, talk us through your origin story here. So I, my origin story is uh, I read Lord of the Rings when I was seven years old because <laughs> I used to read a, a book every evening. And Lord of the Rings was a thousand pages. It was the first book I couldn't finish in an evening, and that was, that was amazing. Uh-huh. And then when I was eight years old, I was sitting behind two other kids in the swimming pool, and they had this book with a blue cover and a dragon on it and they were talking about hit points and I was uh, <laughs> ensnared uh, so I, I grew up uh, playing a lot of tabletop games um, and I'm old enough that we didn't have a computer in the house till I was 13 mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah I was, I don't know if elite means anything over here, the, the game is kind of a Brit thing although there's, the, there's a very successful um, uh, remake now. There's a Kickstarter. Okay. Space exploration game. It was really BBC Model B. Very old wireframe thing. At the time, the graphics were, were amazing. Uh, and now, you know, they're not Well, of amazing. course. Yeah. Sure. But that, that was, you know, my first experience with, with the virtual world, I guess. But this was the TSR stuff. You were you were role-playing games yeah, for so, a while. So, so, so that tab- was the... Tabletop games on the one side yeah. and then, then video games on the other side. But I was yeah. a, a tabletop gamer for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then I, I Were realized, you the Dungeon Master? Uh, uh, yeah. Was, yeah, me yeah. too. Uh, but, what I found out was the Dungeon Master was always the guy who would buy the books. That if you bought the books, you were de facto Dungeon Master. Yeah, I, I kind of, I never, uh, I, I never realized that was the, the case. Me but yeah, either. They, they got me to stump up. I think yeah, that was the, the thing. everybody else just sort of laid back and they were like, hey, there's a new module out. And I was like, there is, I gotta go get it. And they were like, hey, did you get that new module? I was like, yeah. They're like, hey, you're Dungeon Master. I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> But same, but thing, I liked I it. No, I, no, I, I, I like, I like uh, building words, right? You like the control, the yeah. And, <laughs> but I realised uh, twenty years on that uh, I wanted to do something creative. I wanted to write. I wanted to design games. I couldn't make my mind up which. And as long as I was, uh, it, it wasn't D and D by that point. It was was a, a whole bunch of homebrew stuff. But uh, I was never going to get around to doing that as long as I was doing entertainment friends because that was easy and fun and, and great. So I uh, hunkered down. And I'd, in the meantime, I'd been playing a lot of uh, a lot of games over the years, 
and really what has excited me was, was story and games. And it's okay. like a, a, a dysfunction. You know, I, I cannot... <laughs> I'll finish tower defence games because of the story. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how deep it goes. Uh, I care about the story in real-time strategy games. So that's really what I wanted to do. And when I tried to sit, sit down and write, I wanted to design games. I wanted to design games. Now, you, did you learn, are you a coder? Do you learn, I, did you yeah. learn the codes? So that's, that's my, the second phase of my origin story, I guess. Uh-huh. I was an English teacher. Okay. Um, and that's really hard work. So I stopped doing that. And I <laughs> learned to be a software developer, a web developer. And I started to be a web developer in the, at the turn of the millennium, just before the dot boom. Okay. Yeah, so that was good timing. Um, but <laughs> well I, I, I emerged from the ashes with a kind of a shattered remnants of a career and did that for about 10 years. Okay. Um, and then uh, I, uh, 2009, obviously there was another crash, the big financial crash. Mm-hmm. I was writing financial software at the time. <laughs> Boy, you were at the... Just the yeah, eye I know. of the storm. I, I, what, what, right there. Well, what I'm wondering about is if it's actually my fault. Uh-huh. Uh, but maybe that's why. So my, my employer were, they were much more willing to let their consultants take uh, six-month unpaid sabbaticals than they would be otherwise. So I, <laughs> sure. I tried to do a, a startup because all software developers want to do startups and they wanted to make games. And my friend Paul, who draws all the art for our games... Uh, I I was trying to do it as a one man thing. Uh, it was going to be all text. I realised I needed some pictures. I went to Paul and said, I, "I need you to do me about fifty icons, and I'll pay you a professional rate." At the time, he was a film journalist who was trying to break into illustration, and uh, he said, when he saw what I was doing, "Okay, you know, maybe don't pay me, but cut me in for a percentage." Okay. And I said, "I'd love to, because that means I don't have to pay you now. So that's amazing." But you realise there is. Uh, no chance. There's sorry, almost no chance. Not no chance. Almost no chance we'll actually make any money out of this. You know, okay. roll of the dice. And he's been on salary for nearly six years now. So that that so that, that worked, worked out. out. Oh yeah, worked out for him. Yeah. Now, when you're when you're learning to code and you spend mm. this time, does it change the way you thought of storytelling and games? Does it influence in one way or another? Yes. You. Um, you think in terms of patterns and consequences, mm-hmm. and you think in terms of common elements of behaviour. And I think this is one reason why a lot of stories in games are so bad. Uh, by no means all, but a lot. It's, it's traditionally a thing, right, that video game stories are not great. Uh, because you get uh, writers who aren't coders who don't think in terms of what works, mm-hmm. and you get coders who often think in terms of breaking stories down into decomposable chunks in a way that doesn't uh, fit with uh, the way stories work. And then you get uh, a bunch of people operating in the middle and are both uh, who, who really get it. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that, that's where the magic happens. Right. But, but I think, you know, you, you need to be... Even if you've never had formal coding training, a lot of the best interactive fiction authors and game writers I know, I know have never had any kind of coder background. Uh, when they know, when they understand the flow of, of consequence, that's what makes the difference. That, right. That's where the magic happens. Which is a very, very simple concept in storytelling. And I, it's one of my favorite elements of games is, is the fact that something you did... Mm. plays all the way through or you carry your choices i i love where we are in games now that things can be so complicated that choices you make at one point 
uh, long A can pay off somewhere down the road in story in B. And, and I feel like there was a long time in gaming where we were on the rails. It almost didn't matter what you chose. That it, You might go one way or you might go the other, but eventually we were just going to collapse back into the same point. So, uh, yes, that's true, and it is really exciting, but also... Uh, it is the journey, not the destination. Right. And everything does always collapse back into the same point. You know, you, you, you turn off, off the machine right. and you're done. Right. And uh, far better, we talk about choice, consequence and complicity as the three elements of interactive stories. The consequence is just what you're talking about. It's, it's you make a choice and something happens later. Right. That's the result of it. So, uh, you know, you... you uh, you, you took the money or you took the favour and later on you have money or a favour to do something with it um, and, but also there's that sense of uh, the dramatic moment just before you make the choice and that's one of the things that Telltale are traditionally really good at Very good. even though they're not so good at a consequence that you, you really feel it in the moment before you make the choice and that's, that's as important as the consequence mm-hmm. and when you come out the other side, if there is never is a consequence, you start to realise that and you start to feel cheated, so you need to provide something to back it up. But it's still what happens before that's as important. And then as well, uh, what we'd like to talk about is, is complicity, is the sense of acting in the choice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, you can uh, choose to avenge yourself um, on the crime lord, or you can choose to walk away. Um, and it's important that you... Uh, are thinking about your decision, that you're thinking, you know, I really hate this guy, but on the other hand, you know, so you, that, that's the choice thing. And the consequence thing, you know, maybe he'll be dead, maybe he'll, he'll be an enemy, uh, so, so that carries you into the story. But also the complicity of the moment when you actually get to act, right. you actually get to work through your feelings right. about it, that's important too. And something I thought was really fun and exciting about Fallen London in particular was that there's a numerical... Um, percentage there as mm. well on something. So if it almost felt like old Dungeons and Dragons as a compliment, like, well, you could try this, but you only have a 33% chance of making it work. And so you, at one point you go, well, this is the kind of rate, this kind of guy I'm playing. I'm playing this guy who's more watchful. I'm playing this guy who's more uh, shadowy. And so th- I keep doing better and better on those sorts of things. So now I have a shot and like, who do I want to be? Do I want to be the guy? Do I want to play my numbers, or do I want to go against and and mm. kill kill the the crime boss? You know, only because I'm so mad. But I might get a better rate if so if I go with my numbers. So it it's a really interesting notion of consequence that puts that puts a new aspect of it in the hands of the players that really felt like an old aspect, felt like something out of a character sheet. So yeah, I mean that 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 was absolutely our background was um, the. Uh, uh, was, was the tabletop thing? I, I, I was a tabletop veteran. Um, two out of the original four team of writers were, were tabletop veterans, and um, every every not not every choice, but um, in principle every choice in Fallen London or in Sunder Sea spawns more choices. Mm-hmm. You started with a um, uh, a. A, a state that dictates what choices you have. You pass through those choices, you get more states. So there's this virtual circle where the more things you do, the more things open up to you, or the more things close off. Because mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you once... become one person or another. Exactly, which, which is like life. Right. What? Uh, let, let's go back to the origin story. So your very first game that you make. Mm-hmm. Walk us through this and this project. Was, was it uh, the first one you made with Paul? 
Yeah, so that was Forward London, which is mm-hmm. a reading called Echo Bazaar, which is something completely different to begin with. Uh, I wanted to make a small... Oh, God, I'm no good at making small <laughs> games. Uh, I wanted to make a, a small game uh, that would be a kind of research project, would help fund the other things we were doing. It was called Echo Bazaar. It was going to be like a, a bargaining game around Twitter okay. that you'd kind of bet on what on getting people to say certain phrases on Twitter. And there'd be a kind of syndicate mechanism where you could pull your points to get people to bet stuff and there'd be some power-ups to do it and a prison's dilemma mechanic where you could run off with the points. And uh, I started out Paul doing all these... these um, it sounds really complicated. It was, it was really complicated and I lost interest in the actual game because the, the power-up side of it, the, the, the law side of it, was way more interesting. So I asked him to make draw a castle made of jawbones and a tree that ears are growing on and a, a menacing hat was the very first thing I asked him to draw, which is now the, the emblem of, of that uh-huh. And I just this this setting of a, a, a subterranean nineteenth century city gradually emerged, and I lost interest in the uh, the Twitter side of it and the original gameplay side of it. Um, and we went with the story, uh, and so this tiny game is now a project with one point two million words in. Uh, it's been running for five years and is is still growing and. Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm no good at building build small games, but but that that, that was the first <laughs> game you built. So that's that's all online. Uh, it's not a video game in any sense. There's no moving. There's one moving picture, and that's mm-hmm. the loading icon. Is that, uh-huh. is that, uh, uh, it's a spinning loading icon, but otherwise it's it's just um, uh, pictures and text. And you agree with me, right? That words are better than pictures. I, look, I agree. I agree because okay. I'm a writer. Yeah, I'm not. I'm well, not writers, an artist. Writers are right. That's why they're called writers. But right. my, my co-founder <laughs> Paul has been prone to point out that that the uh, the traditional rate is is um, a thousand uh, words to a picture. And uh, but yeah, look, I'm also the guy who spent hours playing Zork and Zork Two and there Zork Three and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all the Infocom games. So I was heavy, heavy into this. So this was, of course, the other side of uh, what went into Echo Bazaar is interactive fiction. Uh, that's the other route. And I've, I played the Infocom games. There's a UK developer, Level 9, that did <laughs> very similar work that, that I loved when I was a kid. Uh, and there is a whole uh, kind of parallel culture of interactive fiction that has just started leeching back into the, the mainstream and affecting mainstream gaming again. So... Um, 80 Days has been mm-hmm. a huge breakout success. Huge, uh, oh, that's a great, which is a great game. Yeah, and uh, I mean John Ingold, who who wrote it, is, uh, was a uh, is one of the the sharpest minds in interactive fiction right now, and he's um, uh, he started out doing traditional parts of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Choice of Games, uh, Dan Fablet's company up in Seattle again. A lot of his authors started out mm-hmm. in interactive fiction, um, and Sunnessee that we did obviously uh, came out of the. Uh, the same background as Fallen and the same sense of, of the text coming first um, and everything else uh, orbiting that. But some of the sea, we kind of we pull back from that a bit. So Fallen London is, is, is all text and the pictures there deserve it. Right. Um, and some of the sea, it, it is a video game uh, and the visuals, the setting, the music, the fucking amazing. Am I allowed to say fucking on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Totally, we can swear on this one. My comms manager benched me for swearing um, <coughs> before the um, uh, uh, watershed on, on British TV. Uh, so I'm still, I'm <laughs> no, we're well, fine. Yeah. Uh, 
but yeah, the, the, the visuals, the audio, um, the gameplay, all these things uh, go into it. There's still a lot of text in some of the and a lot of the most interesting. A stuff lot of text. I mean, look, it's still a story-based yes. game and mechanic. Yeah. Was that hard for you creatively to give over some control to? pictures to music to sound it was it was like giving up my first born uh, <laughs> to bloody daughter and then after that actually it was fucking awesome uh I, so i i really you know i'm used to being a, uh, a really creative autocrat for years um and then what what happened was uh the my lead engineer um, made it snow in the north of the the, the neath the great underground snow uh, the great underground sea where where fallen under set so for sun and sea you're exploring this 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 underground ocean right you go up north and it starts snowing and i i was so, you don't know, but you can't snow in the neath because there's a cavern and there's this whole backstory around when it snows in fall in London. It's the, the frozen tears of the bazaar which is made of people and doesn't make any sense. And, and then I just kind of chilled a moment and said, well, look, ultimately, some of the law is internally consistent, is really important. Some of it I pulled out of my ass. And the stuff that I pulled out of my ass, we can actually contradict. And the snow looks really cool. And that was kind of the pivotal moment where I, I started to, to let uh. go of it. <laughs> And what's emerged from um, Sun and the Sea is a, a, a much, much more collaborative process with the fingerprints right. of everyone in the studio are on it. And Paul's art has really informed a lot of my writing in a way that it, it, it didn't quite in the past. Were you, uh, were you surprised about the depths of, of sound and motion and what that could bring out in story or, or yes. the challenges with it? Yeah, so, so uh, the... Just being able to base everything on this solid foundation of gameplay mm-hmm. was was such a gift. And the themes, the big themes of Summer Sea are uh, distance, exploration, loneliness. Loneliness. And the way that you do that is this this dark space, this bright spot is moving through. And we, we just do that ev- with everything in the game. Uh, so that, you know, I kind of knew was a thing. From the very earliest screenshots and the various concept art, that was huge. Um, audio... I, I, I never got how important audio was, and I feel really fucking naive saying that, but um, until I heard the game Silent, and then I heard it with... Um, uh, so Liam, our uh, lead uh, Unity dev, is this insanely multi-talented guy who also does, like, sound design for theatre and film editing and all sorts. <laughs> and, and, and the audio, again, is a big part of it. And the music, we really lucked out with the music. There's this very talented film composer, Maribeth Solomon, uh, in Toronto, who'd been a fan of Fallen Under back in the day. Oh, really? And said to us, uh, if you ever want music uh, for uh, Fallen London, let me know. Um, and we said, yeah, that's very nice of you, you know, but it's, it's a website, it's a browser game, it doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> and then when, when we were doing Sun of Sea, we went back to her and I looked her up and I was like, oh, actually, she's slightly famous. Uh, she, she's done, uh, but she's perfect. She'd done music for um, IMAX documentaries about the Hubble telescope okay. uh, and the, uh, the deep uh, sea. So, so this sense- is all perfect for yeah. this. The, yeah, yeah. I mean, the tone and the feeling and the atmosphere that you're creating. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we could not have found somebody uh, <laughs> better. Uh, and she uh, she likes her work. She uh, uh, she did some some tryout pieces for us, and we said. Um, it's, we like it, but can you make it like 20% um, less sense of wonder and 20% more menacing? And she went away and, and did that. She just, just, just really nailed it. So uh, that, that has, again, that's, that's been a huge part of the field of the game. It comes up again and again in, in reviews. People love the soundtrack. Right. And it, do you 
attribute that expansion of your creative process from going from a browser game to a video game? I mean, you essentially had to go from auteur to showrunner. Yeah. You know, yeah. from from the guy who did everything to now director of all of it. it exactly that. So, you know, first of all, uh, we had opportunities to do things beyond text that weren't mm-hmm. really there on the web. And also, uh, when... So I, I wrote all the original code for, for Nundum, um, and I wrote all the original content. Uh, and, and that meant there wasn't a, a, a job going in the studio that I couldn't do uh, given time and effort. And, you know, I hadn't coded for a while, I wasn't very good at stuff, but I could do this. I couldn't draw pictures, but <laughs> everything else, you know, in theory I could pick up, so I kind of knew people's jobs. Sunnessy, that's really not the case. There's lots of work gone in there that I, I uh, could not do if you put a gun to my head um, and gave me five years training, with a gun to my head the whole time. Uh, and uh, that means you have to trust people, right. and trust is the basis of collaboration, right? So, so that... Um, uh, yeah, it's a bit bit of a blindfolded tightrope walk, but the stuff that people have done is so consistently so good. And we're on the same page. That's the thing. Because we've been working for London for years, and, right. and we have a very consistent shared vision um, and uh, about, you know, darkness and cannibalism and bat skeletons and carnival masks. These are kind of our, our touchstones uh, that we know right away whether an idea fits or not. Right. And now with Fallen London, you said it's been it's been going on for like five years mm. now. You have how many people did you say? One point some million. Uh, so uh, we, we have one point two million words. Yeah. No, I wish you had one point oh, two million. Users. Sorry, yeah, one point two no, million no. words. We've we, we got I think about forty thousand monthly users at the moment. So it's you know by the standards of big online games, it's nothing. But by our staff, by the standard of an indie studio, it's, it's well it's from something. building from from scratch. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So the question is, how do you how do you keep it fresh for yourself? How do mm. you keep it fresh for your users who have been with you from the beginning? What is the entry point for users who are just starting? Like I just started playing both of these games this mm. week, and I would switch between Fallen London and Sunlessly, and going back and forth. And uh, I'm I'm still playing Fallen London. I'm still playing them both. Mm-hmm. You know, and I will probably still play them after this interview is done, and I no longer Excellent. have to. So, uh, but how do you live with something? How do you curate it for five years and still find the drive to do it? So, uh, the the thing about uh, any story set in a city is that it's it's the distillation of, of human life, and and you you crash that into uh, gothic fiction. Uh, and weird fiction you just have an extraordinary variety of circumstances uh so that that's kept it fresh for a very long time that said uh when we went to summer sea um part of the reason we did it was just financial need because Ford London wasn't paying the bills and summer sea's a really big success it's it's uh put us in a new place and it's helped revitalize Ford London um so part of the reason was was base materialism but part of it was uh it was very refreshing to get out of the city onto the ocean. So the setting of Fallen London uh, is um, unusual. Uh, Fallen London's been stolen by bats. Uh, it's been dragged down about a mile below the surface of the earth, set down on the shores of this underground ocean, which is near hell. And most of the stuff we've done has been in the city. And for Summer Sea, we took the player out into the Untersea. And that really allowed us to go 
nuts. So you've got a city on a turtle shell. You've got an island where um, on the shores of Dream where you can pass through from uh, Dream into Reality. You've got um, a, a mountain of diamond. You've got uh, a, a frozen ice castle, a, a sea of statues where giant hands reach out of the water. Pull... Paul, the one thing Paul hates drawing his hands on, I keep accidentally giving really? him Really? At one point, there was literally a giant seven-fingered hand monster in, in Sunnersea. But I took it out. I took it out. Well, that, yeah. that was one of my... I thought that was one of the most fantastic moments was the, uh, the, the, the giant with the, yeah. the hands coming yeah. out of it. It's, it's very... It's striking. Yeah. So, so he's, he's, he's... Hands are his nemesis. But, you know, he, he battles his nemesis and something glorious happens at the end of it. But yeah, having that, that sense of creative space, being able to go out of, of the city into the sea, uh, has helped freshen things up again. And um, so we've got some ideas about where to go next. We want to go more, do more games set in the same world, and we've got ideas about how to keep that fresh as well. So we keep finding different angles on it. And all the stories in Sun of Sea are a different kind of thing from Fallen London. In Fallen London, you are in your home, you're expanding your base of operations in the city, you're, you're making connections. Uh, in Sunday Sea, as you said a few minutes ago, it's, it's loneliness, it's, it's about going out and returning, it's the, the, the traveller's arc. Uh, and the other thing is, we'd, we'd experimented with freelancers in the past uh, in Fall London, mm-hmm. and it didn't quite work because we, we had some, some real talents, but um, it's, there's a lot of law to spin up on, a lot of, of specific ways of working, um, and it was easy just to write stuff ourselves in the end. Sunder Sea, uh, the inspiration is things like the Odyssey or, or right. the Irish Imrama myths, where you, you go to an island um, and it's almost like a kind of show of the week thing where, where something weird happens right? Uh, and the rules are a little bit different. And so it really lends itself to this kind of anthology style. So for uh, uh, a dozen of the islands in Sunder Sea, uh, we brought in a, a, a very... Um, eclectic bunch of freelancers um, Emily Short who's this interactive fiction legend um, Meg Giant who was the writer in fact on 80 Days uh, Richard Cobbett who's this games journalist with an unsuspected uh, talent <laughs> for games writing um, and um, Amal Elmotar who writes um, linear fiction with an eye to the kind of literary and the meta uh, and, and Chris who's, who's been my sort of writing strong right arm for, for years I wrote a bunch of yarns as well so we had a, a whole bunch of different voices in there uh-huh. too and because we had to write stories that visited and returned from each island where they overlapped, it meant we brought ideas to the game that we wouldn't have got sure. in any other way. So that, sure. that kind of collaborative thing, again, helps keep it fresh. It, it ends up being much more of an episodic yes. idea. Now, how did you run this writer's room or this collection of writers? Did you all get together and pitch talk together talk themes or did they submit things how was how did that pipeline work so we um uh we, we met um in person uh i don't like working with people i've never met in person mm-hmm. um but mostly we ran it virtually uh we use uh, collaborative online tools uh for this and and um chris lives in a different city but he's permanently in an ipad on my desk it's like having a brain in a jar so that's, that's really useful for immediate conversation <laughs> Betty uh, loves that yeah if he gets up a tea we hoot him like a falcon <laughs> but the islands um we uh the, the first round uh we we said to people kind of go with what what interests you um and that worked out pretty well we we we, we got some um some ideas which are good but which weren't immediately easy to weave into the background because our thing again and again is, is crossing and interconnecting stories and mysteries that get very slowly revealed, layer on layer. Right. Mainly. 
And so the next time we, uh, we gave people uh, the shell of an outline to work inside, um, and they kind of worked from the outside in, we gave them quite oh, a specific brief. But, but, but let them go wild with the details. And they, they went wild with the details. And they were, I think they were much happier um, with, with that because uh, the uncertainty of, of, of uh, straying to the wrong kind of atmosphere was, was much reduced. But we, the, the, the way we work is, is now we've kind of pretty much settled down the process. We, we do an initial... Um, we agree an initial picture of them uh, and we have a mid-flight meeting where they go away and work but especially because the writing has to have this interactive element as well where we, they build the structure. Uh, we agree a deadline to, to check in, um, kind of, of, of like coming in and looking around the place and poking the walls and the ceilings make sure everything's in the right place and the architecture's there. And then we have a, um, uh, a final review. Okay. And we, we just hired a full-time editor um, and I did not know how useful an editor was until I had one. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, we, we do our own in-house editing and because it's uh, not like print media if there's mistakes we can fix them after it goes live and I, I god help me I did kind of think as the editor is the person who hit control H and fixed the semicolons <laughs> but no uh, you know I could kind of see the uplift in our writing when it got fed through somebody who, right. who, who knew how to give it that, that extra 20% at, at the end and that also made it much easier um, because uh, the, the writers you brought in were working with somebody who was used to working with writers and was used to being fairly right. robust about a bit, bit of give and take. When I gave Meg Giant notes on uh, Farchas, the, um, the first piece that she did, uh, I was so diffident about it, and she actually, uh, we got drunk afterwards, and she buttonholed me, accused me of being a pussy, and she said, look, I'm doing, I'm doing work for you, you should be telling me what kind of work I should right. be doing. Uh, but I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm British, I'm a little bit diffident, but Olivia, our editor, is, is a bit more robust. Well, and she's... this is a different, it, we see this a lot and we talk to a lot of people in this sort of situation who go from being writers to showrunners. Mm. And they're two different muscles. The yes. muscle of, of doing the creative work and being a manager of people are two different things. So did you find it challenging to be able to get people on board with your vision or making sure they were writing in the right atmosphere and voice and tone and style? Did, did you do much rewriting? Uh, okay, so there's a bunch of stuff in there. So first of yeah. all, the personal side of it, it, it uh, when I first started doing more editorial stuff and less writing stuff, I hated it because I liked writing. It's why I got into this. Right. Um, and the experience of having to be more collaborative in Sun of Sea uh, kind of loosened up, uh, loosened me up in, in that respect. Uh, and uh, and I started enjoying it more. And also, because... Some, how, because how, how long are we talking? Like, did you go through the couple months where it was like, I hate this, yeah, I, oh, hate, yeah. I hate yeah, everybody, yeah, 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 why yeah. can't and, they figure this out? And that there's, there's, there's a... Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a whole... The, there's a kind of floating um, city, uh, the, the, the uh, Khan's Heart, uh, which I originally wrote as this kind of uh, palaces of porcelain, a pool turned into, um, I think he said, um, Wolfenstein uh, meets <laughs> Peking. Um, and when I first saw the concert, I was like, ah, no, that's not what I meant. And then I was like, actually, you know, take a step back, go for a walk. That's really fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> Damn it, that's better. Yeah, so I, so I went with that. So there, there were, you know, a series, like, like the thing with the snow, there were a series uh-huh. of things like that. And I, yeah. I, I loosened up a bit and, and stepped back. And also, because Fairbot has grown um, from four people to 12 people, I'm doing a lot more managing and there's no time for the writing. So I had this kind of 
angst thing where I realised I had to be either a creative director or, or a pure writer. I couldn't be both. Right. And there's a big opportunity to do something different, so I went with the first thing. In terms of rewriting, um, the... Uh, um, and... I've really tried to avoid rewriting. We've got a good house guide, um, and you know how it is. If you end up rewriting too much, you might as well write it yourself. So I've, I've got a lighter and right. touch over the years. Um, and um, uh, we still have a really specific voice, but because it's a really specific voice, I think people can write to it, and it's less onerous than if they had to guess at something a bit more, more nebulous. Right. But we do, you know, we'll go through, and, and one of the big rules um, of game writing is you write short because you've only got people's attention for just a minute in between anything else. It's true and for in London as well. You're on the web, you've got moments of attention before you do anything else. So we, we always trim. Uh, we go back and we say to people, so that's got to be literally 30 words. So slice it down. <laughs> and it forces you to be much more um, poetic and evocative, which is a good thing. Uh-huh. And in fact, we, we just hired two new writers, and one of them is, is a poet. So having said for years that game writing should be more like poetry, we actually... Now you've literally... Yeah, put our money where our mouth is. <laughs> um, that's fascinating to me. How many, how many pages, how many words, when you, when you give someone an island specifically for some of the what are they bringing back? Just, just nuts and bolts. Like, I'm just curious about giving out chunks. Like. Yeah, so we, we, we don't... Th- what we think of in terms of is, is storylets. So storylet is like a, a unit of choice. It's a, a root event. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's, it's here you are on the docks. Uh, what are you going to do? Here's a root description of the docks. There's a bunch of choices and then a bunch of results hanging off those, those choices. And um, we, we tend to say this bit of content would be... And for an island, it's usually been kind of 20 storylets. I think okay. the biggest is something like 60 storylets, where, where somebody, uh, Richard Cobbett, we, we just went absolutely nuts mm-hmm. uh, with the content. Um, and that is, is usually about a week plus to two weeks' work okay. um, with uh, rewrites, redrafts, um, and then there'll be some, some title testing and things. So we're talking about kind of, of uh, I, I guess... Uh, extended short story size chunks but it's a bit more work in some ways than a short story because you've got to handle the interactive element right so i want to i want to go back and talk because you mentioned the financial aspect of fallen london Mm. and then the sun the sea is very different and i want to talk a little bit about the way uh fail better uses kickstarter Mm -hmm. and the way that you found because you're you're very um prolific about talking about the way you use mm. Kickstarter and, and what you guys have found. And I, 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 in my doing my digging, I read a couple of them and I was like, this is fascinating because you seem to be learning something every step of the way. So talk a little bit about the successes, talk a little bit about the failures, talk a little bit about what, how you now use Kickstarter and mm. where do you, I'll leave the, I'll leave the follow up afterwards. Okay. So we, we don't overwhelm this. So we, we've run three Kickstarters so far. Um, Two were successful, um, one was very successful, uh, one failed. Two were for Fallen London uh, projects, one wasn't. And we think right there that's the reason that the, uh, one of the reasons the middle one failed. Right. Uh, because our fans are, we think, mostly Fallen London fans rather than Fail Better fans. That's what, what Chris, who, who headed up the Fail Kickstarter, um, said. Uh, I think also... Frankly, we went back to the well too soon. Okay. Uh, we, we didn't 
it was like four months or something after we'd, we'd uh, executed in the first Kickstarter, we went back. So you, you can't, even though they're both quite small sums, you can't hammer people um, that soon that often. So there was a timing aspect to yeah. it. But also the very first Kickstarter we did for Silver Tree, uh, we surprised everyone. We launched it and then we told them about it. And it seemed like the thing to do. And in hindsight, that's totally fucked up. <laughs> The, it's unusual. Well, he said, "Where a lot of a lot of indies do it, because you think you know you're going to tell the world and you might spoil the surprise if you're going to do it. But no, and especially now being a Kickstarter for a long time has not been news in itself. You, you really need to sell the story. Uh, you, you wanted to, uh, thank you. Uh, you want to uh, test out your Kickstarter pitch. You want to iterate on it. So with us, when you did the first Kickstarter, we we uh, talked about it. We actually ran some." research in the game to ask people which of four different kinds of projects that they'd be interested in doing. Now, talk about how you did that, because I thought that was pretty interesting and, and very smart. So, Fallen London is a, uh, this, this choice-based game. Um, uh, are, are you going to uh, uh, seduce or abandon um, the vicar? Um, are you going to keep the cursed statuette or throw it in the river? And we use a character called the Inquisitive Urchin for audience research. And what this is, this is an urchin who knocks on your door and he says, if you don't want to talk to me, I'll bugger off. But if you do talk to me, you can have a little bit of in-game currency and I'll show you the wares in my imaginary suitcase. And here's my imaginary suitcase. In it, there's like a digital card game, a comic, a bugger short stories, or a naval roguelike. Which one would you be most interested in seeing as a Kickstarter? And then some other less interesting questions about kind of how much do you think you'd, you'd pitch in? So this, the, the questions about how much people would pitch in are massively unreliable, of course. But the questions about what people wanted to see surprised us. We thought the naval roguelike. It was almost a throwaway idea, but people really went for it. So that gave us a direction. And then we, we did some concept art and some prototyping, and we reached out to a bunch of people who he knew were really hardcore fans and okay. said, what do you think of this? And people said, this is amazing, or I don't even know what this is about, or have you got screenshots? Uh, and, and so we reiterated on that. And then we showed people a preview of the Kickstarter. Um, and meantime, we'd been telling our community we had a Kickstarter coming and what was it about. So when we, we went live, we literally had... Um, I think we, we, we accidentally went live seven minutes early or something, because somebody <laughs> found the Kickstarter while we were still uh, setting it up. And that was a, an ask of £60,000, and we made £100,000. Wow. Um, and the nice thing about that was, when I'd first looked at the game, we weren't sure we could make a video game, so we did a bunch of prototyping beforehand to be sure we would be responsible. And the last thing you want to do with a Kickstarter is get funded and then run out of cash. That's the worst thing. We've got no money, no right. game, and no reputation. Right. So I really cut back on the... Uh, on the design, mm-hmm. we cut out like a third of the initial game, so we're pretty sure we could make it. Then we got overfunded. One of the reasons we got overfunded was because Liam, the Unity Dev, and me promised that if we passed 100 grand, we'd both get to twos. So uh, one of our, our super fans, I, I know, personally chipped in three and a half thousand pounds to make <laughs> sure that we went past uh, that. And we are now both inked with art from the game. Well, now we gotta now we got to show the tattoo somehow. So let's it's, see, it's, let's it's see. It's on radio, but it's a, it's a calf tattoo of the... Oh, yeah, there you go. ...of the game symbol. We'll have to take the, a picture of it and put it on, uh, put it on the site. Well, that'll, be our, that'll be our... But... Um, yeah, so, so we, we, we did really well on the Kickstarter, and the thing about a Kickstarter is well, it got a lot of attention to Fall in London. So Fall in London also started doing 
better. Right. And we had this momentum behind Sun of the Sea. And people saw the... Con- you know, so the, the tagline for Fall of Sun of the Sea for the start was lose your mind, eat your crew, which gets the attention. And cannibalism... I was going to say cannibalism is at the heart of everything we do, which isn't really... <laughs> Cannibalism is kind of emblematic of the kind of stuff we do. It's right. dark, but funny. Right. But dark, but kind of funny. And cannibalism is, is, is those things. You know, e- eating people is wrong, but it's also kind of funny. But it's, it's really wrong. But, it but it's also kind of funny. But it hits on everything that is fun about a game that has that sort of tone, that it's mm. a little naughty. You could choose to do it. You don't have to do it. But who wouldn't have presented the opportunity in a game situation? Yeah. And it plays on everything that... that always feels great about a game it's like hey you could try to romance this person and then never talk to them again and you Mm. could do it in a game where you might not be able to do it in your real life or whatever you get to do you get to shoot this person where you would never get to make those Mm. choices Mm. and be the rogue and you could still walk away and be a good person in your real life even though you ate your crew so there there was this experience i had with uh, yeah i'll go i'll talk about this um Months ago, Paul and I were really getting burned out on on Sun and Sea. Is this a cannibalism the, story? It's 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 a, it's a, <laughs> a, a murder simulator story. All right, uh, we were really getting burned out on on Sun and Sea. It's just been uh, uh, coming up to a year, um, and we had uh, uh, some tough scheduling stuff. Um, and we said, let's do some multiplayer gaming, burn off some stress. And we looked at a bunch of stuff, and I said, Paul. These things are all moody indie bullshit. And I love moody indie bullshit. That is our day job. But it is our day job. And you know what I want to do? God help me, I want to shoot some police in the head. So we, we played Payday 2 uh, for an evening. And it was, it was uh-huh. amazing. It was, you know, after we'd been doing this very serious, very arty game, full of cannibalism, for, for, for months, uh, you know, we just went out and shot some police in the head. And, and I still feel bad saying that, but it was sure. such a cleansing experience. It's fantastic. Well, it did... It, 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 plays on all my my Grand Theft Auto 5 fantasies mm. where you get to do all the stuff that you just would never do mm. and it's just fantastic and it's mm-hmm. so much fun um, that's really <laughs> it's very very funny so now how do you monetize has there ever been a, a step to monetize Fallen London? Oh yes yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It's, it's free to play so the I hesitate to call it a business plan. Um, 2009, uh, Zynga was riding high. Uh, there sure. were lots and lots of kind of social grind RPGs. So that was kind of the form that Fallen London took originally. Um, and my business plan went something like Mafia Wars has 12 million players. Mafia Wars has no story worth the name. We will have a great story. Step three, question mark, step four, profit. And, <laughs> Ergo equals 12 million players. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I was just really fucking naive because obviously we, we, we said, oh, well, you know, but we'll be polite. We were gentle about the virality. So, no, uh, and, you know, we, we, we didn't uh, recruit many players. So we had a small hardcore of people who really liked the game. And we've been super gentle about monetizing it. We've been super gentle about forcing people to, to bring uh, recruits into the game. So we, we never made much money. And over the last five years, we've been gradually kind of surgically extracting the... Uh, the parts of the game that are most like those original social grind RPGs, where it's still got some of that in it, and we've monetizing it a bit better. And initially, a lot of the monetization came from action refreshers. Mm. So you, you, you have a certain number of actions per day, you run out, you have to pay. And we still make money out of that. And that's kind of uh, creatively relevant and appropriate as well, because Fallen London is about living in a city over time, and your story unfolds over time. So this natural pacing right. works. But also, 
you know, we, we would be delighted if we could uh, remove the monetization element from that entirely and just make it just a timed release. Mm-hmm. But, but, but we've got to make a living. But we only make, I think, a third of our, our money these days of action refreshers, and the rest comes from sales of additional premium content. Okay. And we've started moving much, much further towards, you know, here's an extra story, pay five dollars to unlock it right like that. and that, that that works so really. dlc yes yeah yeah, yeah 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 that's very interesting um and our we, players are more comfortable with that that's the big thing is yeah. you know we, ultimately we're, we're we're making something cool that they then give them a, a small sum of money for and that's a, a model people are much more comfortable with than feeling a little bit skeeved out by something arbitrary yeah are you finding that with in-app i i have a hard time with in-app purchases i don't love i don't i don't love um I don't love free to play, pay to win. Mm. I, that always bugs me, and I, I typically I will very rarely put money into a game that I've already purchased. Yeah, and 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 me neither. Despite the fact that I've been making my living partly on a free to play game sure. for, for years, and I don't think we will make another free to play game. Um, I think for London's kind of a, it, it is what it is. It'd be very hard to take it out now anyway. And it's adapted to doing it in lots... Of, we get this all the time, that it's, it's one of the most ethical-feeling games mm-hmm. out there for the way... It, you know, ask you politely if it can take your money. <laughs> and, uh, now, we have... Summer Sea is traditional premium pay-wants. Uh, it's, it, we're going to do uh, expansion packs and DLC. Uh, but people who bought it in early access got a lifetime DLC uh, guarantee, so they, they get that for free. But um, we're keeping Fallen London free-to-play... Because now uh, those people who like our stuff and really uncomfortable with the pay, uh, free-to-play model can go by Sun of Sea. Those people who just would never dream of... of, of part- and a lot of people who play for London aren't really gamers. They're happy with the free-to-play model. Right. So, so that, that, that works out for us splitting the audience that way. When you made the jump to Sun of the Sea and you knew that it was going to be a totally different experience mm. and you had to staff up were you staffing up with the money you got from the kickstarter we, or you did not staff up with we didn't staff up okay so no uh, so that's new after the, yeah, the yeah, game yeah. has come out so we uh we we ran the kickstarter uh we we had enough runway um we did a bit better without a full london so the runway extended then we went into early access which we hadn't originally planned to do and we did pretty well on early access not you know minecraft well but pretty well and that meant that we could um staff up right a little bit so we brought some more folk in there and we've been hiring just since we launched sun the sea uh complete uh-huh. uh, at the beginning of february and that immediately we started seeing we're doing well so we, we we've made uh two hires just since then on the back of that right what do you uh were you surprised when you did the kickstarters that the thing that was the most advantageous to you was the IP. Basically, everything had to be in fallen London. And that was the success. By the time we got to the third Kickstarter, right. we realised that. And, and it's very hard for me to say so that sounded like a wanker, but I didn't realise that people liked our IP for the longest time because I thought, we're just these guys who wrote this thing. Right. And we weren't pros when we started out i guess we are now because you've been doing it for, for six years uh but it genuinely we kind of thought okay what we're doing is we're selling fairly interesting text through a free-to-play model and that's innovative so that works so we actually built a, a a whole system story nexus to allow people to monetize text with a free-to-play model it didn't work out at all made almost nobody any money at all which people generally don't like free-to-play 
uh, uh, fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this was a crushing realization that we nearly <laughs> killed the company. But after that, we said, okay, well, obviously, then what people like is for London, and we have a core of fans who, God fucking bless them, are really passionate about it. And so uh, it, it just you know it was a no brainer to make Sun Sea for London, and the next project we do will also be for London, right? Does that does that feel creatively stifling? Is that creatively freeing for it you personally? Feels, How do you feel about it? It feels like it will be creatively stifling mm-hmm. in another few years. So, like I say, going out of the city into the sea um, was a different uh, kind of thing. Uh, where we go next will also be a different kind of thing. Um, there's probably at least one more uh, bullet in the chamber after that. But but then I'll, I'll want to move on. I think, you know, there's a, a limit to the number of years of your life you can spend on uh, uh, darkness and cannibalism. But we, <laughs> we, we were kind of going through this process of... Uh, having, having gone from four to twelve people, we, we wanted to do some exercise around deciding what kind of studio we, we were. Right. And ultimately, the kind of studio that has a bat skeleton in the office, I think that's the way of summing sure. it up. Uh, but somebody said when we were doing this, this, this branding exercise, uh, would you ever make a happy game? And I'm like... Maybe, you know, if it was really good and we're really excited, but but no, everything I've written is basically about death, uh, <laughs> and that's that's the 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 space I'm 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 interested in. That's the space I'm creatively excited by. Um, is is um, uh, everything's basically really unpleasant, but that's mm-hmm. funny, right? That's that's where we are, and that's that's what for London is. So that's that's uh, I would find it quite hard to move to something that was a bit cheerier, right? Does that speak to the pace of the games as well? Because I know you you were saying that fall in London, you like the notion that this unravels over a time that you spend in the city, and also Sun the Sea also is a it is a very not plotting, stately. but it's, it's stately, we like stately, yeah, stately yeah. Uh, speed, you know. And if you were to speed faster through, if the ship moved faster and moved quicker through the stuff, it would feel more disposable yeah. than, it, than it does. I agree so strongly it's caused me some physical pain. It's, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I'm very good at this. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, it's slightly frightening. Uh, we've we, we've taken some shit for this, and, and I understand why. Um, but we decided really early on we wanted the sense of darkness, loneliness, distance, solitude, wide ocean, tiny, bright, rocking chip of a ship, all, all this stuff. And uh, if we made the ship move faster, the game would probably be more fun. And we could probably make the ship move a bit faster. Um, and the game would be fun and wouldn't break, but we'd kind of cross an invisible line and, right. and we'd lose something irreplaceable. So, you so lose the, atmosphere, you lose yeah. tone. I mean, you're sacrificing yeah. the world for a mechanic, yeah. which is interesting. It's, mm. it's interesting to think about that, removing those chunks yeah. and going, well, what's more important? And it sounds like the kind of thing you use naturally steer towards is is tone I, and atmosphere and mood. I think, no, I, I hadn't thought about speed as a, a fail better thing, but I guess, yeah, sort of deliberate speed is, mm-hmm. is our thing because stuff that's fast tends to be uh, uh, exciting, dramatic, uh, zippy, Disposable, uh, but but inevitably not, not necessarily dis- disposable. No, I mean not necessarily disposable. But I, I know where you're going, and and well, but I, well, give me a personal example of something that you played through that you were like it's it stuck with you even though it was fast. Because uh, nothing comes to mind. Good point. Uh, 
I'm not saying that yeah. I'm not poo pooing that kind of gameplay. I'm just saying there's a it feels more like candy. It feels more like I don't have to pay attention to this where one thing I, I enjoyed personally about your games is there is a level of in, of attention that needs to be paid. Maybe it's just because so, you have to read all this stuff. No, I think I think I think you 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 you're right, and you're being flat, very flattering. So I have to agree with you, but I'm at least going to be <laughs> halfway. I think you can have very intense experiences that are also really fast paced. Uh, sure, but uh, first-person shooter games exactly. Hey, look, so, 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 Call of Duty. So there you go, Half Life. Yes, but, but I'm not going to go off and contradict myself. Half Life, you had a really powerful emotional journey, but you know what? Half Life's got dead time, and the, those guys pace it really carefully and the thing is it can be a really intense experience i still wouldn't go as far as disposable it's be a really intense experience if it's fast but it won't allow you time to consider mm-hmm. and i guess you know what 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 we so our games they, they'll invite you into a study with a ticking clock and a dusty carafe of brandy and they'll say sit down there by the chessboard and 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 you know well, let's talk in a minute so there's that kind of thing and it means every time something happens you've got some time to to reflect on it before the next thing happens so that that negative space in the game uh i, I still uncomfortable saying more disposable but it does mean, mean it's more considered well, I, I, and I do think you're seeing that. It's almost a maturing of game because mm. you see it in The Last of Us. Yeah. You see it in it takes longer to get to the, mo- to the big moments and the moments are quick and they can be fierce and they can mm. be sudden. But mm. then you go back into the contemplation of what it is you're doing and it gives you the air to really go oh this is chilling i i absolutely and i think of uh, at the very far end of the spectrum uh, papers please which is uh-huh. really my my kind of high water mark uh-huh. for uh, storytelling through very dark and very funny very dark very funny and parts of it very fast paced and intense when mm-hmm. you're trying to shovel the the papers but between that you've always got the negative space while the next person comes into the booth right uh, that sort of thing um so 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 yeah, having having that and it's I I'm still uncomfortable with the fact that we do demand a lot of time uh, from the player and a lot of attention. I'd like a, a little bit more to happen at sea. I think there's stuff we can do with that mm-hmm. without losing uh, the sense of stateliness and distance. Right. But ultimately, yeah, we, we're after giving you a bit of time to, to to look around you and enjoy Paul's art, which is fucking amazing. So you should be looking. Here. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, where do you see indie games going? Is is Kickstarter the answer to indie games? Uh, Was it your personal answer, but not where you see it yeah. going? It's it's um, indie games are a, a diaspora. They're going in, in all directions. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and Kickstarter is uh, open the door to a whole bunch of other funding models. Uh, a lot of software, a lot of software you you start using before it's finished. Um, a lot of, like, online... <laughs> That's interesting. You know, Gmail. <laughs> sure. Uh, Gmail's been in constant development for years. And sure. People don't pay for it, so that makes a bit of a difference, but people are used to the idea of not using it. Games? This whole thing of, of uh, early access was completely novel. And now we have seen a lot of um, uh, stupid manipulative bullshit winnowed out of early access. It's, the field's beginning to close down. It's become a more mature way of doing it. I think the, the future of indies, indie games, you know, so first of all, uh, you know, there's a million points of light, it'll go in all directions, there's lots of things. But I think engagement with the community is the yeah. uh, read of the hallmark. GDC this year, there was a, a lot of good talks I went to where community and that kind of engagement was the theme. 
And if you're an indie, you don't have shareholders, so you're not answerable to them. You do, you're probably quite a small team mm-hmm. uh, with quite a small community. So, you, you know, you don't have to deal with a million people yelling at you all at once. And you have the agility to iterate very quickly on feedback people give you. And the feedback... When I say feedback people give you, I don't mean you should be doing what they tell you. Right. You should be listening to what they say and making your decisions based mm-hmm. on that. And that's really hard to do with as a big studio with a, a, a you know, budget, a production plan, and a media plan, and all the rest of it. But as an indie studio, you can change course if things things don't work out. Well, it's hard when you're a big anything. It's hard yeah. when you're a big movie studio. It's hard when you're a big television studio. Yeah. Like we are seeing a push across media towards leaner and meaner and. It, it, look, I've, I've, I've been working with these guys at Amazon who are in television, and they say, we don't want to be anybody's third favorite show. We don't want to be everybody's third favorite mm. show. We want to be some people's first favorite show. And with the notion of the long tail, you have a rabid fan base that will support you doing what you want to be able to do creatively mm-hmm. can be better than everybody just checking you out and then leaving. And that, exactly. And that's, that's where we're really happy saying uh, we're not for everybody. Right. And, and not necessarily with this kind of snooty moustache, we're not for well, everybody. It's just the accent. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we can make a game that, that uh, now we know that people like our stuff. We've got enough confidence to make the kind of game that we think we'd enjoy playing. Right. And hope we'll bring people along with us in the way. And, and in the end, that's... That's, that can be the only way that you navigate is what would I want to do? Yes. How do I do it? Yeah. Um, well, this has been really great. A- anything Thank you, you want to tease or talk about or promote? Oh, uh, uh, so I can't talk about the things we're doing. Of course. I can say, I of can course. say that our, our next project is going to be called Dandelion, and it's going to be a quick project, and it's going to be a bit of a bridge between... Sunless Sea and Submariner, which is the um, uh, the expansion pack for Sunless Sea, where you get to okay. go under the waves. Wow! And where can people find uh, Fallen London? Where can they find Sunless Sea? And uh, so uh, www.failbuttergames.com uh, is where we live, and there are links there uh, from uh, to, to Fallen London and Sunless Sea. Fallen London is entirely on the web. You can pay it. For, play it for years without paying a penny. <laughs> Many people have. Damn them. I wish they'd give us more money. <laughs> but, um, yeah, totally free. Uh, Sunless Sea um, is, is priced at an extraordinarily reasonable level considering it's got a quarter of a million words of content and 50 ports full of, of the most aggressively strange shit you will find <laughs> on the computer screen. Um, and, oh, you know what? I do have one last question for you. With, with It was interesting to me to go from a browser game to a full uh, computer game. Hmm. Any interest in um, iPads, tablets, uh, iOS gaming? Yes. I mean, okay. I think, I think Sunnessee would uh, look amazing on an iPad. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, and it's that the measured pace would make, make a lot of sense. I was surprised it wasn't on, yeah. on, on the iPad. Because we're, we're kind of PC guys and console mm-hmm. guys. That, that's that's our, our, our natural home. Um, uh, it might end up on PlayStation. That's a possibility. Um, the thing about uh, the iPad is that um, you really have to drop your price. And if you don't get noticed... Um, then you don't make any money at all. So it's a right. tough business proposition. But uh, I, I'd like to see it on an iPad. Great. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for chatting. This has been thank great. You. And uh, good luck with everything. It's been thank really you very fun. much. It's lots of fun. Yeah. Yes. 
Now leaving Nerdist.com.